Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. Okay, John chapter 8, and we're going to look at one of my favorite John stories. And I hate to use the word story because when you hear the word story, isn't it almost sound like it's something mythical, like it's not real? This is the recorded uh, narrative, the recorded history of this document from John, the disciple, one of the 12 disciples. So this is real stuff. This isn't like made up stuff. Now, I want you to notice something in John chapter 8. We're going to begin there, but back up one verse. Look at verse um, chapter 7, verse 53. Look at the very beginning of the, of, of the word, everyone, I, hopefully everyone is the first word in verse 53. Is there something right there before the E on everyone? It's a bracket, isn't it? Now, there's a bracket. Now look at John chapter 11 and look at uh, John, I'm sorry, sorry, John chapter 8 and verse 11. Look at the last word in verse 11 at the very end. What's there right there? There's a bracket, isn't there? Now, you'll find these things periodically in scripture. There is a bracket also when we study John chapter 5. Remember the guy at the pool waiting for the water to stir? There's brackets there too, I think at in the middle of verse 3 and at the end of verse 4. So the question is, and let me just, for the sake of you understanding, since this is a Bible study, to understand what this means and why the brackets are there, is this. Um, <clears throat> there are many, many scholars who do not believe that John 7.53 to John 8.11 are part of the original manuscript of the Gospel of John. Did you know that? Now, the reasoning behind that, let me explain the whole thing so you don't panic, okay? The reasoning behind it is this, because this section in John, from John 7.53 to John 8.11, this section is not in some of the earliest manuscripts. That's why. And so they say probably wasn't in the original manuscripts at all. But let me, let me, ex let me explain something to you. So you, so you know a little bit of how we got everything here. Do we have any of what's called the original autograph? That's the actual first original scroll of John that John penned himself. Do we have that? And the answer is no. So the original scroll of anything is called the autograph. Never forget that. What we do have of all of Scripture is we have copies of copies. Now, don't panic on that whatsoever. Let me explain something to you. And so we, as, so we have copies of copies. And as copies of copies are copied and copied throughout history, and they're doing it by hand, and they're passing it down, and there, there are humans involved, do you think they make any letter errors here and there? Absolutely they do. So Now don't panic, okay, before you walk out going, that's it, I can't believe it. Okay, <laughs> Let me, let me just calm your nerves, but I want you to understand this. So there were errors here and there, and they've cleaned that thing up so much, and there's a way they clean things up, but these errors are called, this is a type of variant, okay? Remember I told you one of the variants uh, that we see also different types of variant. A variant could be like when one gospel writer says one uh, person, there was one angel at the tomb. Another gospel writer says there were two angels at the tomb. And people say that's a contradiction. No, it's not. It's not a contradiction. If four of us stood here and watched an accident and they interviewed each one of us, we'd have a little bit different slant on the story, right? 
And that's all that means. So you don't want to get all crazy on that one either, okay? So when you have a letter here mistake, a letter there mistake, and we have copies of copies, how do the scholars make sure that this is what was originally stated? How do they do that? Well, <clears throat> what they do is, is they take these earliest, earliest, earliest of manuscripts, and we have 5,800 extant, which literally means existing copies of scripture. Now, that could be a scroll. That could be a piece of pottery with the verse written on it. It could be anything like that. We have 5,800 pieces of this thing. Now, what scholars do is they take it, like say, um, um, let's take for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let's say the word short in there, okay? They would take it in its original language there and they'd look at it and maybe the word short, it would be spelled, one old manuscript would be spelled S-H-O-R-T. Another manuscript would be spelled, let's say, C-H-O-R-T. Another one would be spelled S-H-E-R-T. Now, it could be like that. Now, what they do is they'll take all these ancient manuscripts, they'll compare them together, and what do they come up and realize the word is what? Obviously, Short. Now, that, and let me tell you, it's better probably that we have all these different ancient manuscripts rather than have the original autograph because if one person had the original autograph, what could they do to it? They could change it. They could change it. So we have all these original or early, early uh, copies of Scripture, and so therefore they compare it, and that's how they come up with it, and that's how they know that, no, that's exactly what the writer meant right there. Do you know that the Bible that we have is as good, as accurate as the earliest scrolls that the New Testament writers put out? We have that right now. As early as this early church, we have just as good as they have right now. Now, <clears throat> let me give you some, um, some, time, uh, some historical time frames and copies so you get a glimpse of what we have as far as biblical extant copies. For instance, we have 5,800 copies or fragments of the Bible. The next closest of any writing from antiquity is Homer. We have 1,800 of him. We have 5,800 of the Bible. We have 1,800 of Homer. You know how many we have of Plato? Seven. Seven. So you can see how much we have just of this. Now, of the earliest copies and fragments that we have of Scripture, we have some that are dated to 25 years after the resurrection. Historically, is that really tight? You better believe it's tight because the second closest that we have is Homer. And we have copies or fragments that date 400 years after he wrote. And so the Bible is the most accurate. We have the best evidence. We have the earliest evidence. We have all these things. And so we never have to worry that we do not have what would have been like the original autograph, that this thing, this thing what we are reading is as accurate as the early church was reading, okay? So when you see those brackets, don't panic, okay? We're good. But now you understand that, and hopefully that helps you, and maybe one day if somebody asks you, you can explain that to them. Now, <clears throat> here we go. John chapter 1, I'm sorry, John chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, it's one of his favorite places to go. 
sleep at night. Now back up, you read the verse before, John 7, 53, everyone went home. Is there a contrast there? Yes or no? And the answer is yes, right? <clears throat> so we find out that people go home, but Jesus goes up to the Mount of Olives. Question, did Jesus have a home? And the answer is no. He goes to sleep on the Mount of Olives. He doesn't have a home. So now you see this as part of the humiliation of Jesus, how he came as a humble servant. Do you remember one time when somebody said, I'll follow you anywhere? And what did Jesus say? The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't have a home. So he goes up to the Mount of Olives to sleep. Jesus was not from a rich family, guys. Do you remember when they went to dedicate him in the temple for a circumcision? What do they give? Two turtle doves. What did that mean? We know from Scripture, that means they're dirt poor. That's the least, that's the, min, that's the amount that dirt poor people would give. So he became poor so you and I could become rich in salvation. Amen to that one? Now watch verse 2. Early in the morning. Now this is very important now. Because now dawn is breaking. It's early in the morning. He came again to the temple. So he's left the Mount of Olives. And that's up on the eastern side. He's gone down the Kidron Valley back up to the Temple Mount. It's early in the morning, came again to the temple, and all the people were coming to him. So there's a lot of people there now. And he sat down and began to teach. Here's what I like, because Jesus will now refer to himself later on in verse 12 as the light of the world. And there he sits in the temple, and the dawn is breaking, and the light's coming up, and here he is, the light of the world, teaching in the temple. So there's a lot of cool imagery in this chapter. Now, there is a crowd gathered now. But also, in the crowd about to come, trouble is coming, is it not? We know the story, most of us, so we know trouble is coming. Now look at verse 3 and 4. It says this, <clears throat> and here comes trouble. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, having set her in the center of the court. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery, in the very act. Now... <clears throat> Think about the logic of all this and what's going on. Is it early, early in the morning? The Pharisees catch a woman in adultery early, early, early in the morning. That means they got up not just early, early, early. They got up early, 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 earlier in the morning to catch this woman in adultery. You see how ridiculous this is? So when you look at this, you realize they planned this out. They mapped this whole thing out. They knew about this woman already, but this woman never mattered to them at all until they could use her as a pawn, as a, as a, as a tool to try to get, Jesus to get Jesus to look like a fraud. So that's all they're doing is they're just utilizing it right now. Now, <clears throat> the question is this. Where's the man caught in adultery? Right? It's like, where's the guy at? It's like he gets off scot-free, and really that's the way cultural thinking is, is it not? I mean, it's changing now, but it's the way cultural thinking. Now, we won't turn there, but in your notes, I put down for you Leviticus 20.10, and then Deuteronomy 22.22-24. It says in those verses that both parties, both guilty parties, the man and the woman in adultery, both should be stoned, both of them. But the Pharisees don't bother with the guy, because that's not going to serve their purpose, and they, they're not, which means they're hypocrites, right? They're not even going to follow their own law, the law of Moses, which they bank on all the time. Now, <clears throat> let's piece the drama all together as, as, as it's playing out. They take the woman caught in the very 
act of adultery. Okay. They let the man go free, correct? They drag her along. Do we know where she lives? The answer is no. Do we know where, we're gonna, where they're going to drag her? Yes, up on the Temple Mount. So they're dragging her along. Who knows how far? I mean, they're dragging this poor lady. It's early in the morning. They bring her. They throw her down. There's a crowd there. Jesus is teaching early in the morning. They throw her down. Do they come and interrupt the church service? Yes, they do. And they dump her right in front of Jesus. And now it's here's the gunfight at the OK Corral again, right? And the Pharisees think they've got him this time, don't they? Do they? No. He's God in the flesh. There's no way you're going to get him. And so we get to read it and laugh about it. Because they're going to be made of fools all over again. Now, point one, if you're taking notes, and that's this. Truth-only Christians tend to be condemning. Truth-only Christians tend to be condemning. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 5. Now, in the law of Moses, this is the Pharisees. They've thrown her down. This is what they're going to say now. Now, in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such a woman... What then do you say? Ah, now let's stop right there. Remember, truth only Christians tend to be condemning. Okay. <clears throat> Remember way back when we started in February, in John 1, it says Jesus was full of two things. Do you remember? Full of grace and truth. That's right. Not 50% of each one. He's 100% of each one. And so he's full of grace and truth. A, a truth-only Christian who lacks grace, trust me, I've been in church for four, over four decades, they're, they're like the onboard terrorist in the lobby. And they are. They're, they're just waiting to pounce on somebody. They're just waiting to tell somebody what's wrong with their life and how they need to straighten it out. But the problem with the Truth only Christian is, they'll be glad to tell you what's wrong with their life, but what don't they deal with in their life? Their own sin. Their own self. And I've watched people being driven away from church because of them. I've had people come and tell me how somebody's going after them like that, and I've had to go confront people in church. You need to stop that now, because this is not what we do here. And so, you, because you know, you're a shepherd, you've got to protect people. But truth only... They, they, they don't see the log in their own eye. All they see is a speck in everyone else's eye. Now, as I was writing this, typing it out, <clears throat> you, you ever have the Holy Spirit drop stuff in your mind that you forgot? That you did? That was really bad? I had one of those moments. I go, really, God, you had to drop this in my mind for this, right? But he took me back. He took me back to when I was 27 years old. And uh, at 27 years of age, I was put in charge of the annual Easter play. Some of you remember that play. Most of you probably do not remember that play. And I played Jesus in that play. Yeah. Jimmy will never put a diaper on again <laughs> in public like that. Those files are closed, okay? Um, <clears throat> so at 27, they put me in charge of it. Now, why would, a tr why would they put a... Why would they put me? I was so dysfunctional. But they put me in charge of it. And so I was a director. And I'll never forget, um, directors have power. 
And there was a young kid. I was a young kid, 27, but he was younger. He was like 19. I want to say he was 19. And the Holy Spirit brought it to my remembrance. And I remember I found out that that young kid who's in the play in a small part, I found out that he smoked cigarettes. And I remember I confronted him in front of a few other people, and I asked, you smoke? He goes, yeah, I go. And I just said, you're out of the play. And because I was an onboard terrorist. I was a truth-only Christian, and I thought I was right in doing it. And let me say something about smoking. Um, yes, you are going to help. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> had to do that, okay? Uh, you know, they used to say back in the early 80s, I remember this statement was made in churches, you know, <laughs> it won't send you to hell, but it'll make you smell like you've been there. And I remember that. Like, <laughs> it sounded real cool back then. Now it sounds really corny, you know, but look, I've only met one Christian in my entire life that liked smoking and were and glad they smoked. <laughs> Every other Christian that I've met that had an addiction to smoking, it started when they were teenagers. And they just couldn't break it, and they couldn't break it. And they wanted to break it so badly. And I've never, I, and, and, and so smoking doesn't send a person to hell. It doesn't do that. It just, it just you just don't want to do it because it's bad for your body, it's bad, all these things like that. But, but I, I cut them off, and I said, you're done. I, I, to this day, I can't remember if I reinstated them. I just can't remember. But as I sat there and thought about it, if I didn't reinstate them, you have to wonder, how did that affect him and his view of God or his view of church? And I started, I felt really bad as I was, I go, oh my gosh, Lord, please, I hope that didn't send him away forever because I was just an, a truth-only Christian. That's all I was. I didn't have any grace for people. I'm a John the Baptist type, which is good if you balance it out, you know, but I was just like, boom, 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 and that's just the way I was. And so, do I wish I could go back in time and change that? And I'm sure I did a few other things like that back when I was a young Christian. Um, but thank God I'm, you know, I'm not like that. Thank God I'm not like that. Thank God God showed me grace and showed me, you know, what a dummy I was and what I had to learn and what I had to grow up in, you know. It, those are hard lessons. Anybody know what I'm talking about like that? They're very hard lessons to learn. But once you learn them, you're much the better for it. Now, Look back at verse 5 at the end of it. Notice the last words that they say. They tell Jesus, what then do you say? Are they provoking Jesus to a response to the woman being caught in adultery? And the answer is yes. Now, in your notes, I gave you the dilemma. I gave you the two sides, the, the, the dilemma Jesus faces. Let me tell you what they are as you write it in. Um, first off, the dilemma. If Jesus says, let her go, then he's an enemy of the law of God. Right? Because the law of Moses says, so if he says let her go, he turns into an enemy of the law of God. The second dilemma part is, if Jesus says, well, stone her, then he's an enemy of the people and not a friend of sinners. You see the dilemma? There's a problem there. And they think they've got him. They, oh boy, do they think they got him. And this begs the question, then how do you harmonize, you know, grace and truth and justice? And, how do you harmonize these things? which we'll get into in a little bit here. And so it's getting heated now because remember, they're demanding that she be stoned. So the thing is, what's Jesus going to do? And how many, we all know what he's going to do first, right? And which I love a lot. 
because it just creates more tension. But that's point two in your notes. The finger of God begins to write again. The finger of God begins to write again. Now look at verse 6. It says, they were saying this, testing him. In other words, do they care about that woman or not? Not at all. They could care less. She's just a pawn used to test Jesus. So that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus, here he goes. This is great. Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Now, the finger of God, Jesus is God in the flesh, he begins to write again. Do you remember the first time the finger of God wrote in scripture? It's in your notes. I put the verse there. It's the Ten Commandments. Remember that? Moses up on the mountain and the finger of God begins to write the commandment. That's the first time the finger of God writes. Do you remember the second time the finger of God writes? It's in Daniel. Do you remember what was going on there? When Belshazzar, the Persians are outside Babylon. The Babylonians think our city cannot be taken. It's impregnable. And he's having a big party, Belshazzar is, because we cannot be taken. And the Persians have been outside for months and months, down or upriver. They have been digging out a side reservoir off the Euphrates River. So eventually, because the water flows under the city, because you have to have a water source, and it's so powerful under the city of Babylon, you can't enter in there or you drown, you die. So they're digging out this reservoir, and at a certain moment that night when Belshazzar is partying up, he, the finger begins to write on the wall. It's the finger of God, and it basically says, you have been numbered and found uh, wanting. Your kingdom's going down tonight. And Belshazzar's like, oh my gosh, you know. And the Persians... They finally finished the reservoir. They divert the Euphrates River, October 12, 539 B.C. Historical fact. That water goes down because they diverted it, and the Persians go underneath the city wall through where the water was, and they take the city of Babylon. Now, I have heard that it took like three days because Babylon was so large before the Babylonians even knew that their city was taken. Before they even knew it. Now, that's the second time the finger of God writes. And now we see Jesus, God in the flesh, and they ask him the question, and he, and he bends down, and his finger, the finger of God begins to write again. Question, what did he write? I'm recording. <laughs> it's okay. I'm recording. <laughs> we'll, ask, we'll talk about it afterwards. Afterwards, okay? Um, but otherwise, I would field questions but, um, on, on what you've heard. But we'll talk about it later. Um, so um, now I don't know where I'm at anymore. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> now let me speculate. Because um, we, don't, we don't even know. We, we have no idea um, what's going on. So, um, no, I'm, I'm jumping. I don't want to speculate yet. I'll get to that in a second. So no one knows. He bends down to the ground, writes to the ground. Are they getting angry at his non-response? Is it creating more tension? Absolutely. You think Jesus is worried about that? Not at all. I think this is an awesome moment. And I think there's great lessons we can learn from that, right? Do we have to respond or react to everybody's reactions? No, uh-uh. Will they even, some people get so angry if we choose not to respond? You better believe it. But when you choose to be in control of yourself, who's in control of the situation? You are. 
because you don't have to react. You don't have to do these things anymore. And you're actually maybe becoming a grown-up now. What a shocker right there, right? Now, <clears throat> now, point three, and we'll get to this thing that you were asking right there. Point three, Jesus passes judgment on the judges. Isn't that great? Jesus passes judgment on the judges. I just love him for that. Look at verse seven and eight. He says, but when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, because now the pressure's on, right? Stoner, stoner. And, he's, he's, and they're saying, she deserves to be stoned. He stands up and he says to them, he, can I just tell you one thing right now? When I used to play Jesus, this is one of my favorite scenes. Because I knew I was going to stand up and go, he who is without sin among you. Oh, I used to love that one. You were there, you saw it, right? Be the first to throw a stone at her. Oh my gosh, it's like mic drop, verse eight. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Look what he just did. He's on the ground writing. He stands up. He is without sin among you. Be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he calmly just gets back down and writes on the ground again. Are you, are you kidding me? This is amazing. But by his statement, he is passing judgment on the judges. He is condemning those who are condemning because they are not judging themselves and their own sin. They're not looking at the logs in their own eye. Now, now let me speculate from what he could be writing on the ground. This is pure speculation. <clears throat> so the first time the finger of God writes, remember, it was with Moses, and he writes the ten commandments. <clears throat> One of the Ten Commandments is the Seventh Commandment, which is, thou shalt not commit adultery. adultery. So what if he possibly wrote that? And we don't know if that's true. I'm, this is all speculation. So what if he possibly wrote that? And then he stands up, after he writes, thou shalt not commit adultery, and then he stands up and says, he who is without sin among you, be the first to throw a stone at it. And they're looking at that. I've heard, and I read this a long time ago, somewhere in a commentary, that when he says, and the Greek might lend to this, but I can't remember exactly, when he says, he who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at it, it could be translated, he who is without the same sin among you be the first to throw a stone. Now, I can't tell you that's 100%, but wouldn't that be interesting? And wouldn't it be interesting if he's writing down, thou shalt not commit adultery, and he who's without the same sin among you. Okay, go ahead. Pick up a stone and throw it at her. That'd be wild, huh? And if he did those things, they're just stopped in their track. <laughs> they don't know what to do now. What do I do now? He's got me, man. Now, <clears throat> let me give you this thought. When he says he, and you know my feelings on what I'm going to say next. You've heard me say this plenty of times. He who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. I just think this is like, cancel culture needs to take a big cup of this right here and just drink it down. He who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Cancel culture just thinks that they can just do whatever they want and cancel everybody. Now, you guys know I love Jeopardy, right? I shared Sunday I love Jeopardy, right? I'm, it's, I just missed it. Uh, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> It's recorded, okay, it's recorded. Um, so, 
you know, we know Alex Trebek died. Some of you go, who's Alex Trebek? <laughs> but I've been watching Jeopardy since I was a little kid. And Alex Trebek was the host for 30-some years, and he died of cancer. And so they've had different hosts in the beginning. And, of course, Ken, uh, I'm sorry, um, what was his name? His name was the, Mike Richards, not the two right now. Mike Richards was one of the first ones. I thought he was by far the best host. It, it wasn't even close. But somebody found something he said like in 1785. I'm being facetious. And of course, oh, we can't have him now. Because he said something way back when. Anybody here say something, anything way back when? You think any of the council culture said anything way back when? Who are these eight people out there that were, were bowing down to them? I'm so glad Netflix finally told their people, we're not going to go woke. You don't like what we're doing? You go get another job. Thank God one of these companies stood up because us 330 million of us, we're okay with them standing up. You don't bow to the one million people out there. But I think the cancel culture, they need to get a load of what Jesus said because they, I just, I look at the headlines on social media because sometimes I think, are we insane? And I laugh, I go, I can't, I, it's just a joke, right? This is a joke. But there, it always comes up, Mayim Bialik is her name? Yeah, she's one of the co-hosts now. Well, it's fans in an uproar over Mayim Bialik because she made this little mistake. And I watch Jeopardy all the time, I go, oh, that's a mistake they're all mad about. I'm going, and I'm thinking, get a life, cancel culture. That's the big deal? This is what you're uproar over? This is what your life consists of right now? Just let it go, man. What's the big deal? And so I think this thing right here where Jesus says, he who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. My gosh, if we just lived this, our whole culture would flip overnight. It would be a, it would be a great place to live again, wouldn't it? I think so. So you'll know, I've, you've heard me say this too many times, if anybody wants to complain about somebody on social media, Facebook, whatever, then you first list your top 10 or 20 sins and vices, put it out there first, and say what you're doing before you go point out anybody else's sin. That would stop everything right now, right? If we just did it. And then not just put it out there, fix it. Repent of it. And then you'll have the wisdom and the clarity to be able to point out or judge if something is true or right or wrong. Correct? Correct. Correct. Okay, good. I can move on. I feel better about my life now. Let's move on. <laughs> verse 9. When they heard it, because he stooped on the ground, and he made the statement. When they heard it, verse 9, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. There's an interesting statement. And he was left alone, and the woman where she was, in the center of the court. Now, why the oldest? Now, we can speculate on that, but maybe because the older ones have the most sins to hide, They've had longer, year, more years to sin. And so maybe they didn't want the reputations being exposed. And maybe it's like, meep, meep, I got to get out of here before he writes on the ground my name or something like that. So I, I got to get out of here. Now, verse 10 and 11. I'm going to read these two verses, then I'm going to give you multiple uh, applications to it in your notes. 10 and 11. Straightening up, so Jesus stands up. Jesus said to her, now watch his words. Woman, every, every night I tell Olivia, woman, where's my dinner? No, I don't do that. 
I don't. I'm, jo I'm joking, babe. I'm joking. I just have to joke like that. Okay. I, I have a bad ear, so I can't hear. Okay. What you say? No. Woman, where are you? Where are they? Did no one condemn you? Great statement, right? Great question. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. Let me give you, I got multiple fill-ins for you right now. Let me, let me, let me show you right there. Here we go. The first one is this in your bullet points in your notes. The law required two witnesses to condemn a person. It required two witnesses. That's Deuteronomy 19.50. We won't turn there, but you can look at it later. He says, did anyone condemn? Are there any witnesses? She looks around and she says, what? There's nobody. There, are, there is no one to testify that she has committed sins at all. And so she cannot be convicted or condemned, correct? So there's nobody there. No. The second bullet point is this. Jesus does not go easy on sin. He doesn't. Because what did he tell her? Sin, no more. So he doesn't go easy on sin. The third bullet point. There must be conviction before there can be conversion. There has to be conviction before conversion. Now, Jesus calls her adultery sin. Go and sin no more. He calls it sin. Now, that's a convicting statement, is it not? Okay, good. So there's conviction. The sin, the no more part, is the conversion, correct? So there's a conviction and there's a conversion. Do you remember? We talked about it here too. It began. But Sunday, when Joseph is sitting there and he understands the Hebrew language and he speaks the Egyptian language and the interpreter's there, he knows what Judah and them are saying. He says, it's because we, 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 we sold our brother. Remember that? There's conviction there. And the conviction's there. There's an awareness to come to Christ, to come to, to convert. There has to be first an awareness that you and I are a sinner, that we're sinners before a holy God, and without Him, we're lost forever, amen? So that's what's going on here. Now, <clears throat> before I read you the next one, let me show you a quick contrast. She is convicted of sin, and she stays with Jesus, correct? The crowd is convicted of sin, and what do they do? And they leave. How interesting, huh? She's convicted, stays close to him. They're convicted, and they skedaddle. They, they get out of there. Now, fourth bullet point in your notes. Once again, Jesus is full of grace and truth. Once again, there it is. He says, neither do I condemn you. That's grace, correct? Go and sin no more. That's truth, correct? Okay. <clears throat> this now answers the question that we earlier asked, how do you put together, you know, grace and truth or justice, mercy? How do you do that? Well, you, like Jesus, he's 100% of both, grace and truth. You've got to give 100% of both. That's the only way they harmonize. That's the only way it works. I can't give a person 25% grace and 75% truth. I got to give 100% of each to a person. Uh, in the right. And that's what I need in my life. Now, <clears throat> Also, how do you harmonize it? Watch this. Question. What is the sequence 
of Jesus' statement. Watch. Did he say, I'm going to say them both. Neither do I condemn you, go sin no more. Or did he say, sin no more and I won't condemn you. Which one did he say? Neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. What if he would have reversed it and said, sin no more and I won't condemn you. Would that work? There's no way. We'd walk around every day condemned and doomed because we sin every day. Can you imagine? So how do we harmonize it? It's sequence, 100% of each, but there's also sequence. I mean, can you imagine if we would reverse? How many marriages have broken up because they lived, get it right, and I won't condemn you? Do it the way I want you to do it, and I won't condemn you. Because there's no grace there. There's no mercy. Relationships blow up on such things as there. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to plow through verses 12 through 20, make a few comments as I go, then I'm going to come back to verse 12, and I'm going to finish it right there. Okay? Sound like a plan? Okay, so let's, let me plow through 12 through 20. Now watch this. He says, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Oh, there's an I am statement. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Stop. What um, festival did Jesus, was Jesus in town for again? The feast of what? Booths. Remember that? He who drinks of this water shall thirst again, but he, or from his innermost being. Remember that statement? Well, now he says, I'm the light of the world. Why is that a big deal at the end of the Feast of Booths? Because one of the things they did in the Feast of Booths, they would light the big old candelabra to give light at night up on the temple. Jesus now says, I'm the light of the world. See, when they would light the candelabra at the Feast of Booths, it was to remind them of the fire at night that they had traveling through the desert. And Jesus is saying, I'm the light. I'm the one that gave you light. And so now he's giving you more symbolism of who he really is in the whole story here. Now, in the whole record here, verse 13. <clears throat> so the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now we find out not all the Pharisees left, did they? A lot of people left, but the Pharisees, some Pharisees have not left. They're still there and they're still ready to fight. Now, look at verse 14. <clears throat> Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. Question or statement. Wouldn't it be great if we all knew where we're going? You are a Christian. You know where you're going. You know where you're ending up at, okay? You don't have to worry about it. You know where you're going. That gives you security. But you do not know where I am from, where I come from, or where I'm going. Verse 15. You judge according to the flesh. In other words, he's talking about, the about this woman again. The flesh. I'm not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. Even in your own law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Question. How many in the Old Testament law of Moses, how many people did you need to testify for something to be true? Two. Jesus says, because they question, you're testifying about yourself, it's not true. He says, I testify about myself and my Father 
testifies about me. He gives them two witnesses right there, stating, I am who I say that I am. Verse 19. So they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Think of the statement. If you knew me, you would know my father. In John 14, when we get there, Jesus will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In other words, if you know me, you're going to know the Father. And he's laying it down right there again, and he's going to finalize it in John 14 and verse 6. Now, verse 20. Those were, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. This Right now, when it says in the treasury, this gives historical accuracy of location. These are little statements that are really big, and we don't, we don't catch them typically because we're not looking for them. The treasury was right next to, on the Temple Mount, the treasury was right next to the court of women. Where do you think they brought the woman to? The area near the court of women. So the treasury is next to the court of women. That's historical accuracy right now. John is giving you it right there, showing you the lo exact location of where this was taking place at. Now, <clears throat> let, let, me, let me finish this whole thing off. Let me, let me try to piece it together because the, the Pharisees are all about the law of Moses. Jesus comes with grace for this woman right there. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Okay. Now, in our cars, when we drive at night, we have regular beams, right? And then you have high beams. Those of you who are younger, you never grew up where the high beam button really should be. On the floor. You just you hit it with your foot. It was so awesome. I miss that. I miss that. Instead of having to, you know, if you're driving somebody else's car, it's like, where is it, you know? But I love that. But we had, we had the regular, regular beams and, and you had the high beams. So you had a, a lesser light and yet a greater light. The law of Moses, written by the finger of God, by comparison, is a lesser light. Why is it a lesser light? Because when Jesus came, and he gave his life, and they buried him, and he rose from the dead, he opened the door to the greater light, not written on stone tablets, but written in our hearts. That's the greater light. And that's what he came to give the woman. We're not coming back. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Watch this little verse here. 2 Corinthians 3. And verse 3, and it says this. Well, let's look at two and three. You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What's amazing to me is we saw the finger of God right in this story. 
And in our life now, we know that the finger of God writes on our hearts. It's not on stone tablets. It's not on dirt. He writes in our hearts. That's how we know we're, we're children of God. We have the greater light living inside of us. And we're let that, let, let, let that light shine. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Thank you, Jesus. God, I pray, Lord, um, God, I, I, you know, if there's anything in here, God, that we need to learn, maybe it's just grace. Give people grace. Because that's what people need. And yet, we don't compromise on the truth. Thank you, Lord, that you showed us the sequence. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Thank you for that. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to reveal who the Father really is through these interactions. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCC Norco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.